0: I hope you have your Bible with you this morning. And I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we'll be in the fifth chapter. We pick up where we left off last time with uh, the healing of the man at the Pool of Bethesda. And what was interesting last week is that our group from this church who were away in Israel had looked with their own eyes on the pool of Bethesda or the remains thereof down in a hole deep where it used to be before things were built up over the ages they told me this time it was in bad need of a weed eater It had grown up down in there um, the times that i went were over the winter and it wasn't it wasn't warm enough i guess i don't remember it quite that way um but maybe we can we can pitch in for getting that cleaned up i don't know if we're going to teach on it again but we pick up where where the story leads after this uh, the, the, this healing of a man on the sabbath day uh, the unexpected took place the, The healing of this man on the Sabbath involved what the Pharisees, the rulers, thought to be a break of the Sabbath. And they start by asking questions of this man who's healed. He then says, well, the man that healed me told me to do this. And by the time we get to verse 19 this morning, uh, the way we set this up last week, on the human level, this will spell the end, the beginning of the end for Jesus of Nazareth. They, he will not be forgiven for this. These rulers will not rest until he is dead. It says clearly, John gives us the mile markers as he's moving along. So I think it worth our time to spend a little extra on the setup this morning. And we'll actually go backwards into what we looked at last week in order to get in on what we're going to cover this week. And uh, to make sure that we're good stewards of our time, we'll move through the new material quickly to get to the end and try to make uh, an understanding of what all this means to us. But if you look at verse 16, we ended last week with verse 18, but you've got this very helpful statement here in verse 16, and this was why. I think we each probably begin as young babies, actually, when we learn to speak and we learn to ask questions. Because there's things we want to know. We don't know very much. The best question is, why? Sometimes mothers would wish we'd remove that from the vocabulary. There's 10,000 whys all day long. But this is a good one. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because, that's usually the answer to the why question, right? Because. Maybe I said so. But he was doing these things. That's Jesus on the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. And that's where the discussion kicks off. The way John tells us about this persecution of the Jews and its reasoning that he was doing these things is plural. This was just one we read about. So it gives us an idea that there's a list involved. This is just another on top of a list of infractions of violating the Sabbath. And colors up the story as we read it. At any rate, John did not find it necessary to elaborate on the other things. He told us only about what happened at the pool of Bethesda. Neither does John record a single word from Christ's opponents. All we read is that Jesus answered them. So John doesn't even think it's important to say what they had asked him, but only Jesus' response to their questions. Uh, the wording here is full of legal overtones. Jesus offers his defense to the charges against him, which he doesn't always give. Sometimes he just fires back another question and there to answer. Here he answers for himself. Remember, this is all about the Sabbath And why he's breaking it and how he's violated the rest of the Sabbath. Just a bit of background as to who he's talking to and what they would know. And how that would affect what he says and especially our understanding of what's going on. Since Genesis 2, uh, we understand that God rested after his work of creation, right? Six days he works and the seventh day he rests. So the question over the ages is, does God keep the Sabbath? Does he rest every Sabbath? And if that's the case, then there's another question. Okay, who's running the universe every seventh day, if that's the case? So whether God actually breaks the Sabbath or not, everyone there that day agreed that God works continuously. And if... He's working continuously. One group thought, well, he gets an exemption. It doesn't apply to him. And another group of these prominent rulers said there's a workaround for it. it exists. It's an exemption in another way because God is everywhere all the time. He can't really carry something from point A to point B because he's in both places. So it doesn't count. His work's not the same as our work. Well, whether they were in either of these camps, what Jesus says goes for them all with the assumption that God does work. And then he adds, but I work. The father's working on the Sabbath and I'm working on the Sabbath. That's his self-defense, actually. He applies the same exemption to himself in his defense. And for that defense to hold up and be valid, the same factors that apply to God must also apply to Jesus. And that's where they being smart men know exactly what he's saying. What he's saying is he's claiming equality with God. Verse 18, this was why, those are the first words of verse 16. So he's upping the ante. We've got an escalation here. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So you've got verse 16, 17, and 18 as the, the backdrop against verse 19 through 47. John himself has set up what we're about to read in verse 19. And all the way through 47, which would be the end of chapter 5, they cover the epic claim of Christ's equality with God the Father. And if you were to scour the Gospels, you'd find this is quite an exemplary piece of, of writing here. There's no other place in the Gospels quite like this. Nowhere in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, and orderly statement of His own oneness with the Father than through verses 19 through 47. Along with His purpose and authority in being sent to earth, and along with proofs of His Messiahship, we see no other reference in Scripture that explains it as clearly as what we're about to read in the next Uh, remainder of chapter 5. This is called a discourse. There are more. We get to chapter 6. We're going to see the bread of life discourse. A discourse is a long extended talk. Maybe a sermon. But Jesus is talking and for an extended period of time. We won't cover all this today. We'll just go to verse 29 or 30. And then we'll look at 30 through 47 next week. But this is full of dramatic language. And deep with theological meaning. I said the word theological. That doesn't mean that you can initiate the checking out process for the rest of the sermon. That's over my head. That's for you guys. Everything we're going to read when we read it here in a moment is going to be accessible to you. This isn't rocket science remember we just looked at a woman at a well who knew nothing and had brought people back and they were wondrously saved uh you know enough to be able to get if you'll use your mind and you think through these things and then at the end hopefully we'll have the opportunity to use our imagination along with our our thinker but what i'm trying to say is what i say from time to time at the beginning of a sermon you'll have to wait for this we'll have to set it all up we'll have to hear jesus out We'll have to act like we're one of the people sitting with the rulers as Jesus is answering them and try to understand what he's saying to get to his point. And when we get to his point, we'll be able to see how that applies to our life, but not ahead of time. We'll have to use our brains here today, and it'll be well worth our our use of them. So let me tell you what's coming in the next 11 verses that we're about to read. Here's the contents of it. We're going to see at least three uses of the double amen, which is truly, truly. You've heard Jesus say this, truly, truly, I say unto you. In the Greek, that's the word amen, amen, amen. Sounds a lot like amen, doesn't it? That's because that's what it is. (laughs) And it means truly, or I tell you the truth, or that is the truth. Kind of like in political world, hear, hear. So when we amen something, we agree with it as, as truth. Jesus is saying is twice as a way to alert the listener to consider the full weight of what is being said. Truly, truly, I'm telling you the truth times two. So, whatever he says after that is important. We need to listen. Then we're going to see five uses of the word four, not the number four, one, two, three, four, but there are one, two, three, four uses of the word four spelled F O R. Does that make sense? And what that's for, okay, it's like saying because. Sometimes they're translated either way, for or because. But it's it's a reasoning. He's made a claim he's equal with God. For, and he lays out four points, four arguments, four uh, bases for how that's true. We'll see that. Even a fifth, if you consider it later. We're going to see four uses of the word judgment, including the final judgment. Anybody care about what happens after you die? Well, you learn that here. Two uses of the word, an hour is coming. Sounds ominous. One use, the time is up. The time is now. And then the next use, there's still time. But it's coming, and just as ominously. Other themes include the honor of God, or the rightful honor of God, and the Son. There's the word belief in the Father and in the Son, and what that entails. And then there's the resurrection of our dead bodies after the last judgment, or before actually. In other words, this text is rich. It's more than enough to work with, more than enough to engage the mind and even the imagination. So, you think now we should read it? Well, let's read it. This is verse 19 of John chapter 5, and we'll read down through. Verse 29, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only that which he sees the father doing for whatever the father does. The son does likewise for the father loves the son and shows him all that himself he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all he that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help to understand your words. What Jesus meant in explaining these things to the Pharisees and what they mean to us. Not just here and now, but going forward until the end of time as we know it. Lord, bring these things to life. May we use our mind, but also give us an imagination. And perhaps to touch the emotion. These are emotional things. They're talking about the rest of our life. So may we have ears to hear, eyes to see. We ask these things of you, the author of this word. In your name, amen. Well, for sake of time, let's run through the pieces. At least the four fours. And then what is said afterward. And then at the end, we'll try to make sense of what is meant when... The Son of God is given the ability, the authority to judge. And it seems as though there are two groups. One group resurrected uh, to life. The other group resurrected to judgment and what that means. So let's look at verse uh, 19. And we'll work our way through these. We'll need to think from the perspective of the rulers here. Because that's who Jesus is talking to. If we lose sight of that, we might lose sight of what this means. So we're pretending, at least in, in, in the capacity that we can, as residents of uh, North Carolina in 2019, we're going to try to think of ourselves as good Jews sitting there listening to this man known as a carpenter's son. So Jesus said to them, the double amen here, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. So they say, you've claimed to be equal with God. And he says, well, let me make sure you know what that means. Because whatever they meant by that, he wanted them to know that whatever it was, he did nothing independently from God his Father. And the reason why he might start off this way is because they're probably assuming not so fast No human being takes on himself the claim of deity. You don't get by with that. Humans can't be God. God's character is violated when a human thinks that he's as good as God. So in some way, this Jesus has attacked God by the audacity of this claim. This diminishes God's character, right? I mean, if you see somebody dress up in a goofy outfit claiming to be the president of the united states but it's obvious it's not the president of the united states that's probably not something that's uh, very flattering to the real president of the united states right it's, it's, in, in fact there's certain laws about how far you can go with something like that well they're doing the same what he wants to say right out of the gate is no violation has been made I don't do anything independent of the father we're on the same page here what happened on the sabbath was something that he has authorized himself there's there's, there's no uh, rogue action here on the part of the son in violation of the father so whatever it meant to be equal with god it doesn't mean that he's independent from the father and verse 19 through 26 is where we see these four statements start to add up and the first one builds on the last part of verse 19 In support of what he just said, nothing of his own accord, but what he sees the Father doing, look at it. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. You could use the word because. Only what the Father's doing, because whatever the Father does, that's the Son does likewise. So not only does this claim, this first four, claim perfect sonship on part of Jesus... Because a self-determined rogue action would not be in harmony with the father, would it? That'd be an attack against the father. But he's doing exactly what the father does. It also shows his claim to deity because if you said whatever the father can do, I can do, is also saying however great the father is, I'm just as great, right? Again, the guy who's impersonating the president. If he says, I can do whatever the president can do then you're saying you're as good as the president or you're bringing the president down to where you are. But in this case, he's not saying any of that. We're we're the same. Not only does this claim perfect sonship, but also his deity. Look at the second four. That's in verse 20. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. This is the, the the most recent thing in their minds would be the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. But look at that. The, th- this describes why. How can he do whatever the father does? Well, because the father loves him and shows him everything that he's doing. When you were a, a kid, did you like the opportunity of getting into dad's toolbox? Or is that off limits? Did it have a lock on it? Depending on the way your dad was and maybe the way that you... Handled his uh, his tools right for a while. Dad's didn't have a lock on it, but later it did. And uh, that because he'd find his whole box of nails driven into a tree and the hammer somewhere out in the woods. Yeah. But to have have the relationship where everything the father does, he's willing to show and explain to the son. This this is not like Jesus grew up as a child under his father. This is an eternal generation that goes back to forever past. He he was with God in the beginning, right? But the idea still, there's there's no veil in the relationship. They they know each other intimately. At least the way of the Father to the the Son. So that's important. It shows how the Son can do whatever His Father does. And the second part of this, uh, "...many greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel?" This is in the ongoing process of revealing who God is. Remember the the prologue, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God, was God. The Word had life, and that was the light of men. Then that Word became flesh, and then by verse 18, what's the flesh here to do? Show us the Father. So through this knowledge of what the Father has, He's showing the world what the Father's like. Through things like healing a man on the Sabbath. And explaining himself as he is right here. Moving along. The third four. Verse 21. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the son gives life to whom he will. This third one here is a grand example of what's already been said in uh, doing what the father has already done. Again, go back to the sandbox. My dad's better than your dad. Why is my dad better than your dad? Because my dad can beat up your dad. Or whatever. Whatever. Um, Nobody says, well, my dad can raise the dead. And so can I. I mean, you're the Pharisees. You're calling this man into question. He's answering. You would think maybe they could work this out. I mean, come on, guys. I know that sounded bad. um, Like I'm equal to the Lord. But here's how it really is. Not at all. He's taking them from aggravated with persecution to wanting him dead to somewhere along the way their heads exploding. By him saying the way that the father raises the dead he's given the son the ability to do that too. I mean it's as if he's leaving nothing on the table in his his explanation. In the Old Testament, God alone was the one who could raise the dead. We've got scriptures that speak this way. One prominent rabbi had said that there were at least three keys that God had not entrusted to any representative whatsoever. You all know what the three keys were? One was rain. You Remember in the Old Testament how they pray for rain and a famine and only the Lord could open the clouds. Then there was the womb. Remember the stories about the barren women who would pray to open their womb There was a story of of Hannah and Samuel. Stories like that. And then there was the, the key of the resurrection of the dead. He hadn't given that over yet. Well, now he has. The son has been given the keys. He can do exactly what the father does. And then the fourth, which is to add even more onto this stack of things that he is telling the Pharisees, the rulers... As to the basis for why he can do what he can do. And why he's equal to the father. For verse 22. The father judges no one. But has given all judgment to the son. That's a change. Again from the Old Testament. That all may honor the son. Just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son. Does not honor the father who sent him. So just as God had been the one who would raise the dead in the Old Testament, God had also been the judge, the judge of all the earth, and had judged his covenant people all through the Old Testament. We've seen this, if you know your Old Testament. The stories stack up of his judgment, dealing with these people. But here with the fourth four, the fourth point of what Jesus is saying, it is Jesus, the son who insists that the office of judge has been entrusted to him. And this again is probably something that these men don't understand any more than we would understand. This is not the same idea of delegation that we are familiar with. This is not an ambassador. This is not a a diplomat. This is not a deputy. They're the same. Um, At home. I got one of my boys down here. One here and one upstairs. Uh, From time to time we let them Explore the neighborhood. We'll give them a little freedom. With a watch and a timer. And they got to answer back. Got to make sure communication is, in, is as important to them as it is to us. But usually I'll put somebody in charge. Right? And if it's the forum, your sister's in charge. Now you think there's any way that under that decree. They would honor their sister like they honor mom and dad. <laughs> Fat chance. They might act like it until you walk away. And the first time sister says, hey, remember, meh. Or it's not often we have a babysitter because we have four kids. They don't answer the phone anymore. Um, But to say, babysitter's in charge. You listen to her. Do they honor the babysitter like they honor you, mom and dad? No. But in this case, I mean, it's quite clear. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. The honor is the same. Total equality. Heads explode as they listen to this. You're a carpenter's son. Who do you think you are? So God had long been recognized as the judge. But now Jesus is telling us something has changed from old to new covenant. It's been given to the Lord. And we'll come back to this. But let's look at the second, truly, truly. That's in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Well, he's been given the keys to judgment, but that doesn't apply to this group. But has passed from death to life. The second, I tell you the truth, colors up what we read in verse 21. Father raises the dead, so the son can raise the dead. Now back to 24 The people who have been given life are described in different terms. Their identity is revealed as these who have believed in the Father. Look at it. Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me, that'd be the Father, he gets eternal life. And how do they believe? Well, how does it say? I say to you, whoever hears my word... And if you hear his word and believe on the Father that sent him, what happens? No judgment. That's what the verse says. So they are in present possession of eternal life, even though they're standing in their mortal bodies. I say to you, he who believes my word, believes him that sent me, will have eternal life or has eternal life? Has eternal life. Present possession. This is what theologians describe as the already and the not yet. We see them both here. It's a fantastic description of what to expect. Look at verse 25. It's the third truly, truly. I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. So this is present when Jesus is speaking it. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So this, the the blood-bought, born-again child of God who believes on the message of Jesus and is wondrously saved is in full present possession of eternal life though they're living and breathing and operating a quite mortal body. But that's not all. At one point, unless the trumpet sounds, that body will wear out and will die. Then there's what comes next The not yet right you notice how it says the hour is coming and is now here so that's already but then when we get to verse 27 we read about another hour now before we get to verse 27 we'll read what we've skipped over for as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son also to have life in himself which simply means God is self-existent remember when we talked about this before If there was ever a time where there was nothing, what would be here now? Nothing. Because if you have a mason jar full of nothing, it doesn't matter how long you leave it on an eternal shelf in nothingness for something to pop out inside of the empty mason jar. You never get something out of nothing, right? If there's something here now, and I hope you believe that, because I'm here, and you're here, the pews are here, and the windows are here, and the sun, moon, stars are here, we're all here. That's because God has existed forever. We came from Him. He's self-existent. We're not. Our existence comes from Him. So our life comes from Him. The reason why we have life, He gave it to us. And He can take it away if He wants to. Kind of like the old saying, I brought you into this world and I can take you out too. Well, Jesus can do that. Look at verse 27. And He has given Him, that's the Father... He has given the Son authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. We'll come back to that. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Notice that there's no and is now here. So this is still future. When all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, like the ones over here. At the resurrection, where bodies and spirit are reunited. And two things will happen at the end, verse 29 those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, anybody who's sharp with their theology might read a statement like that. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, might say, that sounds an awful lot like works. You'll find in Scripture that when it comes to judgment, it's always based on works. Now, salvation is by grace. and That's the only way you can be saved, because if it's by works, you don't survive that judgment. Somebody's going to take your judgment for you through grace. That's why we'd have standing before the Lord. So salvation is by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. But the judgment is by works, just like it was declared in the Garden of Eden. You sin, you die. And that's the way God's going to punish it. The miracle of salvation is the death somebody else is going to take for us. That'd be Jesus. He's going to make sure that by grace we are saved. So who is this son of man? We really need to spend a minute or two on the son of man because this is Jesus' favorite way to describe himself. Of all the gospels and all the way he refers to himself when he's speaking, this is his favorite. There are others and different authors describe him differently. But this is his favorite. So what does it mean? The son of man. Well, we're going to have to go backward into the Old Testament to answer this question. And when we go there, this is going to be in, uh, in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to actually be reading what is called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is hard to understand because it's in terms that we might expect out of kids who are making things up with a vivid imagination. And what this is for is to help us lay hold of things we have no reference point, because none of us have been to the future. We don't know how these things will be worked out and carried out, and a lot of symbolism is attached to these things. Things that we paint as a picture that, that represent other things, like we put on our flags with eagles holding snakes and things like that. What does that mean? Well, there's a purpose for all of it, and there's a purpose here, but this is from the Prophet Daniel, you remember who Daniel was, the, the dreamer, kind of like Joseph. He could interpret dreams for uh, the likes of Nebuchadnezzar, thrown in jail, lion's den guy. Well, he's explaining dreams of things that will come to pass later. And if we pick up reading in verse 9 of chapter 7, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So we're reading the description of the government of God and His throne where He rules in authority. His clothing was as white snow and the hair of His head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning with with fire. We don't even know what to make of that. Kind of like the the wheels of the the chariots and things. Whatever it is, it's got fire on it. So it, it, it... It's plenty for the imagination to to think through. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000, which is a a myriad uh, times a myriad, stood before him, and the court sat in judgment. Wait a minute. Sounds like the ancient of days is judging, doesn't it? I thought the son was given judgment. Well, let's keep reading. The books were opened. That makes sense because judgment has to do with our works. Our works are contained in the books. I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. What horn? Well, we'd have to read backwards. And I looked and the beast was killed. What beast? Again, it's more to this story. And his body destroyed and given over and burned with fire and the rest of the beast And their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Boy, the kids are asking lots of why questions here, right? But look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There's where he gets the phrase. Now if you like C.S. Lewis, he used to talk about a son of Adam, right? Which is a human. We would think reading Son of Man, well, that's somebody born of a, of a man, a human. This is more than a human. Human, but, but more than a human. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and language languages sh- should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We're talking about God's son here. it has been given judgment. But to fill in the blanks here. If you ever go to seminary. And you want to study Daniel. You're probably going to have to take a class. Called Daniel Revelation. They're usually both studied at the same time. Because the they're, they're book ends. You really need one to understand the other. So turn to Revelation. You didn't expect to go to Revelation. On Memorial Day weekend. Some people are missing this. But they've got the live stream archives for later. Let's look at Revelation 4. Guess who wrote Revelation? Same guy who wrote John. Much older. He's giving us the rest of the story. He's saying, this is titled, The Throne in Heaven. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Some of you curious People, do you like looking in an open door? It's hard for me to even walk through the neighborhood and not look through an open window. There's light coming through. Somebody's in there. What's going on? This is an open door in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold the throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Sounds similar to Daniel 7. This is the Ancient of Days. And he sat there... And had the appearance of jasper and uh, carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders, or 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was As it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Keep reading. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Oh, it's getting weird here. What are those? It's actually hard to say. But this is the way the government of God, in a place we've never been, desperately trying to understand what John saw in a vision. He's using words as best he can to describe it. But look at what they do, and the four living creatures, verse eight, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So the the world revolves around this. And especially these elders and these 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 creatures. Look at verse 5. Here's here's where it gets interesting. Then I saw in the right hand hand of him who's seated on the throne. A scroll written within and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven nor on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. (coughs) Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now let's use our imagination, okay? We're reading apocalyptic literature. fascinating for the mind but the handles as far as reference points oh yeah I've seen that been there done that there's no handles this is rock climbing with no assistance right but what we've been reading and I really like the fact that some of you saw the pools of Bethesda last week with your own eyeballs okay I got a handle here and John's been very careful to give us geographical locations as he's reading all through the scriptures he starts out with With places. Uh, As soon as he gets into chapter 2. There's this place near the Jordan. You saw the Jordan. Where John was baptizing. Jesus is introduced. Some of his first disciples begin to follow him. Then we get to the Cana with his wedding feast. I've been to weddings before. Uh, There's two groups of people in this room. Those who would drink the wine. And those who wouldn't. Right? So you can say, well I know about that. Or I don't. And then we get to... uh, Situation with Nicodemus, meeting in the night. We've probably had meetings that nobody else knows about before. Or this woman at the well, talking to her. It's Jacob's well. You can go where it is. You can sit on it, just like Jesus was. Or this pool of Bethesda where He healed this man. And what we're looking at here is this Jesus, the Word who was with God and was God was the light of the world, had life within him, came to this earth, took on flesh to show us the Father, is explaining himself to a group of men who want nothing more than to see him dead. And he's explaining, revealing the truths that come only from someone who's seen them because he's had access to heaven himself. That's where he came from. So you pick the perspective you want to look at this story from. You want to look at it from the perspective of a woman at a well who didn't know anything before Jesus came there except that their religion's way different than Judaism and why are you talking to me? You want to look at it from the perspective of Nicodemus who's got to know more but he's ashamed anybody knows about it. Or maybe this man at the pool of Bethesda who was dull, more dull than any of the rest of them and once you're done you go tell on Jesus and get him in trouble and that's what he's involved with now. Stand there and look into the eyes of the one that made you and hear him say, don't sin anymore. Something worse could come on you. Does he know who's saying that? Does he know what that means? You know, that's about as human of a perspective as we could get to this. But we've been reading about things that we've seen through dreams of others that are foretold in the future. What was the most dramatic part of that we just finished in Revelation 5, according to the man who wrote it? What well, was his heart broken over? He's weeping loudly. Nobody's here to open the scroll. What's, what's, what's contained in the scrolls? Judgment. Right? Who's the judgment been given to? Jesus. But it looks as if there's nobody worthy. Worthy. Nobody in heaven or earth or under the earth. So John is crying, contemplating a world without judgment. And why would that be an awful thing? Because if, if we're looking at this, you're crying because the judgment's not going to happen? Who wants the judgment? It's the worst the world will ever see. It's the wrath of God stored up in the symbol of a scroll with seven seals each worse than the one before. Why don't we avoid that? And most of the world would say, that's just a goofy story. That's not going to happen. But when they throw out the goofy story, they throw out the only hope for something that only judgment can bring. And what is that? Justice. What about all the people who were killed in wars, someone else's power struggle? Is that fair? Did they get justice? Justice. Before they died? No. Most of the people on this planet never see justice. What about mothers who leave children behind who die of cancer? What about all the sick that Jesus has been hit? What about the sinful hearts that every man, woman, and child walk around with? That's all been come, Jesus has come to deal with. And how does he deal with it? We're reading about judgment, but there's only one thing that qualifies him to be able to be that judge, right? He's about to take the lid off the worst the world has ever seen. But that's only from the perspective of the world. Worst or worse has been met out before. The reason why Jesus is worthy to open those seals, to take up the scroll, is because he alone knows exactly What all of that feels like. He's taken it before. For you. For me. For those who would believe as he's marked out here in scripture. You ever sit at the doctor waiting to get a shot as a kid and wondering. That guy has no idea what this feels like. (laughs) Or to hear somebody say. And this can be funny. But if you know the truth of it. uh, There's part of your heart that gets gripped. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Doesn't it? You don't know that though. Until you're the father displaying a child. Right? What about a father who would pour out. The contents of that scroll. On his only begotten son. You want to. Pick up where we left off. Look at verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders I saw hold it. You expect John to turn around. And see what had been described by the elder. As the lion of Judah right. How scary is the lion of Judah. In the book of Revelation. If you're having the dream. I think about as scary of an animal. As you'd ever look into the eyes of. But what does he see instead of the lion of Judah. Judah. Well, it's actually the Lion of Judah, but it's not scary and it's not at all what you'd expect a lion to look like. A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits. Horns are a symbol of strength and eyes are a symbol of wisdom. This this offspring of a sheep, a sacrificial animal is standing there. If we didn't know what it meant, it might actually look absurd. Judgment goes to that. The Lamb? The Lamb of God? Absolutely. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Every tribe, language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on the earth. That little, depending on the way your Bible puts that, it looks like it's in poetry form. It's because it's a song. The first verse has to do with the fact that he was slain. Don't you think he's worthy to judge the world that put him on a cross? Yeah, in most of the movies we watch, that's how it ends. It's called retribution. That's not the biggest reason. The second verse of the song here, you ransomed people for God. You you bought them by taking their judgment, paid them off. And then the third verse talks about what he did once he bought them. He gave them to his father God as a present. You think it's difficult to buy for your family at Christmas time? What do you get them? What if you had to buy God something? Would you give him me? I don't think that's a good present. But that's what his son did. He gave him me and gave him you. That's why he's worthy. So does this change the perspective of what you see when you hear Jesus saying, I'm equal with the Father. I'm here for the purpose of judgment. I'm going to take it all on my shoulders and pay for it so the world can escape. There's one more thing. Turn to chapter 7, verse 15. And this is talking about those who have survived the... Until the end of the great tribulation. Verse 15. It's another song here. Therefore they are before the throne of God. Who? The people who've washed their robes white. They serve him day and night and in his temple. I know this is going long. But I I hope it's worth it. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them. Nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. Here it is, folks. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Where do tears come from? Joy or hurt? In this life it's a little of both. But it involves that aspect of, of the, the already and the not yet. Joy usually comes from the already, the not yet. Well, we hope toward that. In the middle's a lot of wrong. The world's broken. Things don't work like they're supposed to. The, the natural world breaks down in our bodies when they die. People that do mean and hateful things to each other. But this tells us that there will be one last tear you'll have. And interesting it's described this way because wouldn't you say that the eye is the most sensitive organ in your whole body? That's why I've given the option you usually wipe away your own tears, right? Who wipes away the last one? The governor of the universe. Worthy to open the scrolls. Clean everything up and put it right. As it was made to begin with. Having taken on himself all the punishment necessary. To tenderly wipe away your last tear. As the recipient of all this grace that demanded his death at such a cost that's quite a story is it real I hope so these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and in believing you might have life through his name turn back to John what does he say there let's see what verse was it Chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, the last of the truly, truly. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. But has passed from death to life. The man given responsibility to judge. Took it himself. So you can be exempt. Acquitted. You don't even have to show up to court. And it will wipe your last tear away at the end. Hopefully, you got to use your brain and maybe your imagination. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand and obey. Father in heaven, we thank you for this message and what's bound up inside of its themes. And how when we trace those themes into other places of scripture, we get to expand and broaden the story. It comes into focus And we see the truth of salvation. Lord, we ask that you wipe away our tears. We ask that you give us the capacity to believe in the one that sent you. Give us the life that is bound up in yourself. And give us the grace to tell others about it. Thank you for your story. Thank you for truth. Thank you for apocalyptic literature. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the lion and the lamb. Lord, may these themes carry us throughout the week. Give us someone to share them with. We ask this in your name. Amen.
1: Father, we are thankful this morning. Thankful for this time together that has been set apart for worship. And for hearing your word. And Lord, we're thankful for your presence here with us. And just for the opportunity to, to come together to you in prayer. We're especially thankful on this Memorial Day weekend for the men and women who have served our country and continue to serve, Lord. And Lord, we just call to mind those who have given their lives in service and for their families as well. We're thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy due to all those sacrifices. And Father, we just ask for your continued blessings for our church, for our pastors, and for all the families represented here this morning. And Lord, we pray this morning for our mission of the week for Ann and Judy Schmidt with Camino Global. Lord, help them continue their good works, further spread the good news through their actions. Lord, just lead us and guide us in all that we say and do as we leave here today. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.